while the clouds roll back and the stars fill the night that's when i'm gonna stand up take my people Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, we'll be looking at chapters 13 and 14 of Black Reconstruction in America by W.E.B. Du Bois. And uh, this is going to get us right to kind of the climax and the major themes of this this book. I think it's it's kind of easy to fall into, I want to say it's a trap, but uh, a very... Uh, uh, a limited like placement of this book in in the historiography like after reading like the phoner stuff and the contemporary scholarship on reconstruction of course we emphasize uh african-american agency and the institutions they created and and the you know the fight for land the fight for for family the, you know the fight for political rights and all that kind of stuff and we you know obviously we're looking at it in a more optimistic way than we did um you know, back in the Dunning School. Um, but, you know, both we, we, in both cases, we kind of emphasized Reconstruction sort of failed because it didn't achieve civil rights. Uh, uh, or it, the one school says it, it failed because it didn't achieve civil rights. That's a contemporary view. The, the old view is that it failed because it, it, it gave those political rights to people who weren't ready for it, and then it took a like a revolution, a counter-revolution to restore the uh, a more balanced, proper government, right? And you know, twisting like like I guess the focus on breaking down the Dunning School has been like where, and that's kind of what I've been talking about a lot too, in this, and and certainly that's part of what Du Bois does. I think one thing that's really clear when you're reading this book or when you're reading this section of the book and you get towards the end of it and it's kind of always been there but but you know again if our gaze isn't on it we might not as be as hyper focused on hyper fixated on it which is this is actually much more radical of a text than just uh kind of rewriting or undermining the the conventions of the dining school right and even some of the videos i watched about this uh, like, for instance, I saw a conversation with Lewis Gates and Foner. I think we were talking about the Library of America edition of this book, actually. Um, and then I think at one point, Eric Foner calls it like the Library of Congress, not the Library of America. Big mistake there. But anyways, it, I guess it doesn't ultimately matter. Uh, but they emphasize the Dunning School and the criticism of the Dunning School, too. And, and I think if we do that too much, um, we, we kind of limit the contribution of this, of this text. Because I, I think it, it, it has two other elements in it that are prominent that we need to focus on. And, and, and one really comes clear here in chapter uh, 13, uh, which is, uh, like, I guess, like whiteness studies or like, like talking about white people as, as a group with, with a certain identity politics. Uh, that are going to shape their political decisions in the aftermath of the Civil War. That's, I, you know, now that I, I, it's more clear in the chapter on the border and frontier regions, uh, chapter 13, which is like all the other states that we haven't already looked at. So we looked at South Carolina in one state. Uh, then we looked at Mississippi and Louisiana. 
then Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, all groups that have different circumstances. The first three states had black majorities. The next three states had, uh, you know, smaller white majorities um, or like a more balanced population, but, but slightly on the, the, on, you know, where political power went to the white working class. But in the border states and in the frontier regions where you have uh, much smaller African-American populations, there the white worker um, played the role. And, and the white worker played the role in like deciding politics to a greater degree than, than this group did in the other states during Reconstruction. And that's part of the tragedy of, of this book is is the decision of the white working class to turn against democracy uh, in the interests of, of, of kind of racial identity politics. Um, and, and I don't know if he's the first to say this. Uh, you know, obviously whiteness studies, which kind of makes that claim that white people did throughout history engage in politics, you know, via like engage identity politics uh, essentially identifying as white people and making that a cornerstone of their political action uh, even if it undermined their own economic self-interest in many cases um, so I don't know if he's the first to do that but it's a very common school in historiography now with you think like Roedeker's wages of whiteness and a lot of the work on the white working class has emphasized this theme because you got to under you know this effort to try to understand why not interracial unionism why not interracial solidarity as a way to fight capital right well the only explanation you can get, you can't get there by looking at rational class politics the only way you can get there is by assuming there's some sort of other reason that they're they're voting the way they are right you know i guess we got the what to match with kansas argument now which focuses on like cultural politics it's a pretty old book at this point but you know that that's that argument but the whiteness studies people say it's, it's really solidarity with their race rather than their class and and not that that's an irrational choice in every case right like rodiger's book the wages of whiteness and i think that phrase is hinted at here too in this book it's like you do get something for that right whether it's psychological or e even in some cases uh you know in a, in a mar more marginal way like material like better than what not as good as what you could have got with true interracial solidarity or class struggle politics but uh a slightly better deal than maybe uh, the pre-civil war period in a way and I, and I said before, I was like, why isn't there, why doesn't the Klan take a more prominent role in this text? Well, it does in these later chapters. I think Du Bois was waiting to talk about that in the states in which the Klan played a prominent role and Klan violence played a prominent role in their, in the counter-revolution. And he has a lot to say about them actually in the border, border states. So anyways, that's one thing that I think these chapters really make clear to us. And then the other thing is just um, the broader, again, again this, isn't, it's, this is one of those things that it's always been there in this book. Um, and you could see now the, how he's setting this up. But it's very, very clear in chapter 14, the counter-revolution of property, that really 
the struggle is between democracy and capitalism, not between like, not simply between abolitionist uh, civil rights push, uh, the liberal push for civil rights for all people versus like the old planter class. That clashes there, but that gets subsumed in um, the larger conflict between like capital, North and South, although very different sides to it, right? Or the Southern capital was largely destroyed with the abolition of slavery, but there's still landowning class. But Northern capital ends up in the, after the war in a dominant position. And they're just as hostile to democracy as the planter class. So there's, there's a kind of a ready-made alliance there. And that, that's worked out in chapter 14. Now, that's not the best organized chapter, in my view, and I think it's a little, uh, could have used a little bit of work in, in maybe reorganizing it a little bit or making it a little bit more um, rational. There's a lot packed into that chapter. But I think it does effectively show um, like the triumph of finance. So ultimately, the winner of this book is not the planter class, right? It's, it's not the, the former Confederate leadership. It's, the, it's, it's finance capital that ends up winning. And that's the story that really needs to, I think, be talked about in re reference to this book is, is the anti-capitalist nature of it, right? We've talked about how there's Marxist theory behind it, you know, and that's clear from the first chapter, the black worker, the white worker, the general strike. Um, and that language is there throughout. I've mentioned it pretty much in every episode here in this series, but it's overt anti-capitalist uh, arguments are pretty strong and on the surface at this point. And it's just when people talk about this book in the context of like contemporary scholarship on reconstruction, that gets downplayed, I think. Um, and, and I don't think it should be because I think Du Bois needs that to be that he's for in his mind, that's integral to his whole argument, right? Is that reconstruction politics were anti-capitalist or had the potential to create an anti-capitalist movement in, in America. And, and that failed. And the real tragedy of Reconstruction isn't something just like the rolling back of civil rights, the failure of land reform, you know, or th things like that, horrible as they are, but that's not the, where he's focused. He's focused instead on this counter-revolution of property, the victory of finance capital over the entire country, which is going to set up what basically what he sees as the rest of American history up into the Great Depression, which he's living through at this time. So anyways, um, I think that makes uh, these chapters kind of important in that they're kind of crystallizing. And then they're kind of like, oh, I, why was I not thinking about that? Maybe I was just like reading this too fast or, or not thinking in those terms because this is a dense, rich book and there's a lot of material in it. Um, but I was kind of like distracted maybe or not seeing it, which is strange for me to say because these are themes that actually I think – I often ponder about, you know, whiteness studies, class politics, capitalism are things I'm constantly thinking about. But um, somehow I just got distracted by, um, by maybe it's the books I've been reading, maybe it, recently in the series, maybe it's the, the fact that I was like doing research on this book, listening to like, you know, the discourse on the new mo movements in reconstruction history. Because I, I, you know, if you don't pick, if you pick up Foner, you don't get the feeling that he's really talking about the triumph of the capitalist class over America. Or if you read uh, Richard Wright's uh, *The Republic for*, um, what that book 
called? Uh, the Republic for which it stands, uh, the Oxford History of the United States, um, book on the Gilded Age of Reconstruction. It's, that's not even the prominent focus in that book. So um, it's like one part of Du Bois's like reinterpretation that I think hasn't fully been worked into Reconstruction history. Whiteness, to a certain degree, certainly the civil rights struggle um, is, 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 is commonplace now. But I think there's other elements of the book that haven't stood the test of time. And that might just be because, you know, the liberal bent of, of a lot of mainstream historiography. It's, you know, it's most historians aren't like anti-capitalist in the same way Du Bois was. So um, anyways, Chapter 13, The Duel for Labor Control on Border and Frontier. How in North Carolina, Virginia, the border states and the southwestern frontier, the dominant white worker after the war sealed the fate of his black fellow laborers. Um, yeah, and, and he doesn't have much space to talk about each state, but he does go to each state, uh, Texas, North Carolina, Virginia, um, the border states. I don't think he says much about like Maryland or Delaware. There's not enough former slaves in those states for them to matter much. Uh, Arkansas, a little bit. Texas uh, has a prominent role here. So he's surveying about half of the Confederacy and, and, four, and four states that were not even in the Confederacy but had slaves. Um, and, and so that leads he's covering a lot of ground. Um, and given that, he does spend a lot of time on the political minutia of a handful of states like North Carolina and Texas uh, in particular, Virginia as well. Um, but the story is the same kind of in all of these in which um, white people uh, played a prominent role in f creating the Reconstruction governments. Black voters then had to support either carpetbagger candidates or or more sympathetic white uh, Southerners into political office. You know, it, you know, really, it's only in South Carolina that you're going to have a really, like, direct control of, of like the state legislature by, by black voters. So there's compromises in most of these states, but the difference here is uh, blacks were never in a position to like really push their political agenda quite as directly, and they were also like more. It was easier for violence and think movements like the Klan to, to kind of solidify the, the counter-revolution um, in, those, in those states. Um, but despite all that, I, like Du Bois here is a, you know, he, he's like in the previous chapters, he's, he's really focused on what black people were able to accomplish uh, despite this. And he does emphasize some real gains, especially in the schools. And he has a whole chapter later in the book on the founding of the public school, which I think he's going to end up saying, I, it's, it's pretty clear from what we've already read, that he's going to be saying, like, this is the big achievement that comes out of it. It may not have been, it may have been a small amount of what Reconstruction governments were after and what black voters wanted, but they at least got that. That was, like, the one thing they were able to, to achieve. Um, so that's what he emphasizes when he kind of concludes this chapter, saying, um, 
Okay, he says, this is a sketch on the part which Negroes took in the reconstruction of various, reconstruction of various southern states together with some indication of their action along the border. It's incomplete and for that reason inconclusive. And yet one can read these records and the documents upon which they are based without concluding that this was a perfectly normal development and these black men were ordinary men who, according to their training and experience, and particularly according to their economic conditions, did extraordinarily well and did not have the slightest degree or do not in the slightest degree deserve the contempt and unbridled abuse that's been put on him, end quote. So this is primarily, like, again, a criticism of the Dunning School um, that he keeps coming back to. Um, but I will say, like, there is a lot of subtext here about, about why white voters uh, went the way they did. And, and if you go back to look at, like, the chapters on Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, it's there, too. Um, quite a lot. So um, it, it's one of those things like if he just doesn't have, I guess, the full theory articulated yet uh, in a way that like a modern reader of history would like identify it that way. The, the language isn't quite there, but the, the theme is there. And I think it's, it's quite innovative in that, in that level. So anyway, I'm not going to say too much about these, these, these states. It's not the most exciting uh, narrative to just kind of bounce state to state and, and get, the, get the bird's eye view of it all. But, you know, he does hit the public school in each of those, each of the sections that he does go to. Then we get to chapter 14, The Counter-Revolution of Property, where the subtitle of this chapter is, How After the War, Triumphant Industry of the North, Coupled with Privilege and Monopoly, Led an Orgy of Theft that Engulfed the Nation and Was a Natural Child of War, and How Revolt Against This Anarchy Became Reaction Against democracy, north and south, and delivered the land into the hands of the organized monarch of finance while it overthrew the attempt at dictatorship of labor at the, in the south, end quote. Now, he mean, when he says dictatorship of labor in the south, he's using the Marxist language of like dictatorship of the proletariat. So for him, that dictatorship is, is what he had ho what he's hoping for, what he, he thought would have been nice if it could have happened. That's what you needed. You needed a, this, a dictatorship to control property, right? It's not what you get. You get triumph of property. It's in the title. It's in the subtitle. It, it's thematically throughout all this. But so what he's actually saying here is the corruption uh, in Southern governments, which the Dunning School blames on black uh, civil rights and voting rights and, and participation in government, was just an outcome of of the economic conditions of the South after the war, which I think pretty fair, right? Um, sounds, sounds right. But the, then the reaction to that becomes not like a liberal triumph. Instead, liberals become like allied with property, with finance capital. And they're the ones who are going to like bring a new order out of, this, uh, out of this mess. And that's going to triumph over democracy and this dictatorship of labor, um, which I think he probably a little bit overstates how far along we got to that dictatorship of, of labor. We know he wanted to name his chapter, um, his chapter on South Carolina, the dictatorship of the black proletariat in South Carolina. He wanted to name that. And he was talked, talked, away, talked out of doing that by Marxist writers who said, you re it doesn't really apply in that case. But you could tell he, he never really rolled that argument back because he uses this term dictatorship quite a lot. Um, now, this chapter is not the most well 
organized. I, I still think that. Um, I don't know if it, was, if it was rushed or planned or if he's, he, he's doing quite a lot in this chapter. And, and I think this is an argument that maybe needed to be stretched out a little bit or set up earlier and integrated throughout. And, and to a good degree it is. But I don't know. The way this whole book is organized, maybe it, it, it could have done a little bit better. Um, but um, he starts out here emphasizing the the like the class goals of northern industry quote as war as after the war the industry of the north found itself with a vast organization for production new supplies of raw materials a growing transportation system on water and land and new technical knowledge of processes all this with the exclusion of foreign competition through the system of import tariffs and the vast immigration of labor tremendously stimulated the production of goods and available services but to whom were all the new goods increased services to belong and in whose hands would lie the power which that ownership gave, end quote. Now, of course, that's a question all industrial societies face, and that's the heart of the Marxist uh, question of class struggle, right? Um, who, you know, the fact that a society industrializes is just a fact of development. Who benefits from that, uh, the, the producing class or the owning class? And, and we know how that ends in America. Obviously, the owning class wins out. Um, but it's not as simple as just the North kind of moving in uh, after the Civil War, because the Civil War itself created institutional chaos among within capital, destroying Southern capital and creating what he calls here uh, an anarchy of thieves, grafters, highwaymen, right? Threatening the orderly processes of production as well as government and morals, right? So um, it has to be rebuilt. Uh, the property class kind of has to reorganize itself around finance capital, right? And the government plays a role in doing that. Uh, the abolition democracy forces play a role in doing that too in the alliance that they form with, with, uh, with northern capital against the planter class in the south. And, and this, in, a, in, in this big transformation, it seems the question of, of black civil rights is secondary to it. We almost get the sense that maybe it didn't matter things like the vote or uh, the 14th Amendment. Now, I don't think Du Bois wants to say that because he distills to emphasize that this was only possible in part because those very amendments, the 14th and 15th Amendment, had to be repressed uh, and had to be uh, limited in the South to really free up this region for, for a reorganized capital to, to come in. Now, his, his language is kind of all over the place here. We, like, for instance, he, he uses anarchy to refer to the more chaotic situation where everything is disrupted after the war, right? And this is what he account, how he accounts for the corruption in, uh, across the country, actually. He actually calls it the disgrace of the whole nation. That's there. Um, he says black men and white men both were eager to get rich. In every southern state, white members of the old planting aristocracy were part and parcel of the new thieving and grafting, but the South did not lay the blame of all this on war and poverty and weak human nature or the wretched example of the whole nation. No, after first blaming greedy and vengeful northerners and then holding up the public excavation of those southerners who accepted Negro suffrage. So the blame got shifted, and this is getting to the propaganda history stuff, of course. But all of this then gets replaced with what he calls uh, a feudalism based on monopoly. So it's, it, capital is going to reorganize itself into monopoly capitalism, 
where where corruption is no longer like uh, a, like scandals produced by the chaos of of the transformative period, but but rather just just the nature of the economy, what he calls at one point like a super government, right? Giant corporations essentially running the state, right? A kind of corporatist state almost is, is hinted at here. So he sets all this up in the first 10 pages or so of the chapter, and, it, and it's laid out pretty clear. And, and the rest of the chapter is much more, I think, sporadic in its approach. It's, it's a little bit all over the place. Um, but it all fits into this theme, but it doesn't, it's just, maybe this needs subheadings. It needs some kind of maybe organizational twist. I don't know. Um, it's, it, there's something with this chapter. It's hard to, hard to describe. It's just, I, I think it seems a little unpolished or he's trying to do too much or he's kind of uh, not sure how to pull these threads together. And I don't, obviously, I don't want to criticize Du Bois, who is a genius, but this is not the only time I kind of felt this reading this book. When you compare this to, like, The Souls of Black Folk, which is poetry on every page, right? And everything is laid out kind of perfectly in that book. Um, you don't get that same feeling here, I think. Um, anyways. Uh, so he's got a section here about the carpetbaggers, where he sees the carpetbagger as kind of a, an agent of northern capital, which is, uh, you know, previously in this book, there's more positive interpretations of, of the carpetbagger. So he's kind of uh, changing how, how he looks at that, that role, uh, you know, as like highway managers and, and, and you know, directors of, of the injection of, of southern capital, exploiting transportation and raw materials um, to for the benefit of northern capital. Uh, we have here a lot on public schools again. Um, we got stuff about uh, white resentment. So again, kind of the white, whiteness uh, theory is stated explicitly here where he says, um, property in the South had cut, had its value cut in half during the Civil War. This meant that property was compelled after the war not simply to attempt to restore its losses, but to bear a burden of social expense, largely because of the widened duties of the state and the increased citizenship due to emancipation and enfranchisement. The bitter conflict, therefore, which followed the enfranchisement of Negro labor and of white labor came because impoverished property holders were compelled by the votes of poor men to bear a burden, which meant practically confiscation of much of the property which remained to them. End quote. So resentment of, well, this, that's actually about the property white class here, um, resenting the fact that they were they're going to be the, because they're the only ones with capital, they're the only ones with something that could be taxed. They'd be the one who had to pay for all the reforms. Uh, so there's a bit here on finance, like limits of, the limits of liberal reforms just because of like financial limits on, on what could actually be done and what could actually be extracted with half the capital of the South destroyed. We have the struggle for the Civil Rights Bill. Um, this was the, the 1875 uh, Civil Rights Bill. Of course, there was previous Civil Rights Bills. There was one in like 68. The 1875 one would have basically uh, stopped Jim Crow before it, it, it began, right? Um, if it had actually been implemented fully. Um, 
this provided broader civil rights beyond just voting rights, like uh, equal treatment on, on public transportation, public accommodations and service and juries. Um, this later was declared unconstitutional um, by the Supreme Court. And a, a decade later or so, which of course opened up the door to other Supreme Court decisions like Plessy versus Ferguson and other, and basically allowing states to pass their, their Jim Crow legislation. But the discussion of that is here. So um, I think what he's trying to get at is what to do with the liberals in a way, the, the pro, the abolition democracy liberal class, um, which ends up being on the side of of Northern Capital, right? Um, and therefore being a check on the democracy they're after in a way. He, he wants to kind of expose the liberal as, as failing in their own project because of their own limited vision of what democracy could actually be. Um, it's also in this chapter where Du Bois talks quite a lot about dictatorship as sort of a positive thing. Um, you know, normally when we think of this word dictatorship, we think of it, you know, as an anti-democratic force, but in the context of a revolution, and, and in Marxist theory, a dictatorship of the proletariat simply is democracy, right? So it's, um, it's the implementation of the will of the majority on the over-property to equalize those power relations, right? And, and the force here he really focuses on is the Freedmen's Bureau. And, and of course, it's true in a way that the Freedmen's Bureau was given enormous powers by Congress to essentially be a dictatorial force, implementing fe like federal policy over local and state governments and, and, and wishes. Um, I've never heard it called a dictatorship quite this way before, but I understand why Du Bois does that. Um, you know, and, and obviously this could have been another, this could have been another like ember that could have changed America it's almost like if you think of like what the progressive era was trying to do or what the New Deal even more was trying to do. And then eventually with the civil rights, like all of 20th century American history is political history, at least, is, is about the triumph of federal power over states. Right. And and to some degree, corporations. Right? And that the Freedmen's Bureau is sort of like one of the first efforts to try to create a, a powerful federal institution that could impose the will of the federal government over, over, over states. Um, you know, I'm not sure it's fair to call it a dictatorship outside of this, this very Marxian definition of, um, of it. But even this gets betrayed. He says the temporary dictatorship set up by the federal government represented and had to represent, in essence, the attitude of northern capitalists. So this becomes unescapable. So the, the feeling you get when you read this chapter, and this might be the logic of the chapter ultimately, is that he starts out by saying, like, this is what happened. What happened is uh, chaos to order, but that or it was the order of, of corporate capitalism, of monopoly capital. Um, and then we have, like, different branches. We have the carpetbaggers. We have uh, the public schools. We have this reconstruction government's trying to uh, tax the planter class to create, you know, land reform or whatever. Land reform's talked about in this chapter, too. We have the Civil Rights Act. We have the Freedmen's Bureau. We, we have all these different s stories that are part of reconstruction. And the end route of each of these quests, if you will, 
is is northern capital interests right so there's it's like democracy the experiments of democracy and the the, the embers of democracy always ultimately get put out by the same force because they're they're contingent on it, on that in some way they couldn't escape that so he, he even has a section where he talks about con- the the import, like since property is comes from confiscation there has to be some kind of counter confiscation and I, you know, again, I think he's probably overstating how much, how far Reconstruction governments got to, to moving in that direction. But he, he certainly thinks that also is forestalled by, by the interests of, of the property class. Um, he ends with uh, this chapter with the bargain of 1876, which is like the codification of this, of this triumph of, of northern capital. And here's how he concludes the chapter. So in America came civil war over the slavery of labor and the end was not peace but the endeavor really and honestly to remove the cause of the strife to give the black freedmen and the white labor land and education and power to conduct the same in the interest of labor and not of landed oligarchy labor lurched forward after it had paid in blood for the chance and labor especially black labor cried for light and land and leading and i want to stop here um I'm not light, I guess it's just freedom. Land, of course, we know about the, the push for land reform. Leading, of course, is, is their voting rights. Um, going on, the world laughed. It laughed north. It laughed west. But in the south, it roared with hysterical, angry, vengeful laughter. It said, look at these N-word. Uh, they are black and poor and ignorant. How can they rule those of us who are white and have been rich and have at our command all wisdom and skill? Back to slavery with the dumb brutes. Still the brutes strove on and up with silent, fearful persistency. They restored the lost crops. They established schools and gave votes to the poor whites. They established democracy and even saved a pittance of land and capital out of the still slave-bound wage. The masters feared their former slave success far more than they anticipated failure. They lied about the Negroes. They accused them of theft, crime, moral enormities, and laughing grotesqueries. They forestalled the danger of united southern labor movement by appealing to the fear and hate of white labor and offering them alliance and leisure. They encouraged them to ridicule Negroes and beat them, kill and burn their bodies. The planters even gave the new whites their daughters in marriage and raised the new oligarchy on the tottering, depleted foundations of the old oligarchy. A mass of new rulers, the more ignorant, intolerant, and ruthless because of their inferiority complex. And thus was built a solid South impervious to reason, justice, or fact. End quote. Um, so this is what's going on in the South. This is the summary of this whole book of what's going, what happened in the South. And I think this sums up a lot of what we've been talking about here, um, especially the whiteness stuff is, is implied heavily here. The, the chance for democracy and how black people led that charge, but then how white people, due to resentment, um, took the deal that was given them by the white ruling class in the South to decide with them, right? But all of this, here's the point of this chapter, all of this is like subsumed by the larger story of the solid North. The solid South is, is an important story, but it's not the one that's going to dictate the future of America's history. America's history is not going to be the history of the South. The South is going to be, by the 1930s, by the time Du Bois writes this, like the problem, right? The, the problem of Southern poverty, the problem of Southern underdevelopment. There, it's not going to be the dominant force. The dominant force is going to be monopoly capital. So with this arose a solid North, he writes, a North born 
of that North which never meant to abolish Negro slavery because its profits were built on it, but who had been gradually made by idealists and laborers and freed slaves to refuse more land to the slave, to refuse to catch and return slaves, and finally to fight for freedom since this preserved cotton, tobacco, sugar, and the Southern market. Then this new, new, this new North, fired by a vision of concentrated economic power and profit greater than the world had visioned, tried to stop the war and hastened back to industry. Quote. Now, what he means here by stop the war, of course the war stopped because the South was defeated. He means here the, the war after the war, the war for democracy. That has to be stopped. And in, you know, the chaos has to be stopped. Um, order has to be reimposed. And that means sacrifice to some things. But the new blind, angry, bewildered South threatened to block the building of this new industrial oligarchy by the political power increased by the very abolition of slavery until the white had to yield to democracy and give black labor the power with which white labor landholders threatened northern industry. In return, and this is all the compromise of 1876. In return, northern capital bribed back black and white labor in the south and white and black labor in the north. It thrust debt concessions and graft on the south while in the north it divided labor into exploiting and exploited groups of skilled, highly played craftsmen, craftsmen who might and did become capitalists with a massive, ignorant, disenfranchised, imported foreign slaves, end quote. So that's the, that's the tragedy. But he's not quite done. There's a little bit more in this conclusion of this chapter where he, he again has these like poetic, beautiful poetic moments. And I think the stuff we just read was pretty good, but a little academic-y. When he gets past a little uh, page break here, um, on page 635 of, of 634 of my version, he starts like zooming out again. And I love when he's able to zoom out in this book. It's some of his best moments. For there began to rise in America in 1876 a new capitalism and a new enslavement of labor. Home labor and cultured lands appeased and misled by the ballot whose power, the dictatorship of vast capital strictly curtailed, was bribed by high wage and political office to unite in an exploitation of white yellow, brown, and black labor in lesser lands and breeds without law. Especially workers of the New World, folks who were American and for whom America was, became ashamed of their destiny. Sons of ditch diggers aspired to be spawns of bastard kings and thieving aristocrats rather than the rough-handed children of dirt and toil, end quote. Beautiful here, like pointing back at white America saying like, you come from humble origins and now you want to be like the Rockefellers or something. And on the backs of all these other black, brown, yellow laborers around the world. Going on, the immense profit from this new exploitation and worldwide commerce enabled a guild of millionaires to engage the greatest engineers, the wisest men of science, as well as pay high wage to the most intelligent labor, and at the same time to have left enough surplus to make more thorough the dictatorship of capital over the state and over the popular vote, not only in Europe, but in Asia and Africa. The world wept because within the exploiting group of New World masters, greed and jealousy became so fierce that they fought for trade and markets and material all sl and slaves all over the world until at last, in 1914, the world flamed in war. The fantastic structure fell, leaving grotesque profits and poverty, plenty and starvation, empire and democracy staring at each other across world depression. And the rebuilding, whether it comes now or a century later, will and must go back to the basic principles of reconstruction in the United States during 1876 to 1870, 
1867-1876. Light land and leading for slaves, black, brown, yellow, and white, under a dictatorship of the proletariat. End quote. So a beautiful uh, aspirational ending to this 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 chapter, and and you know forces us to think about alternative histories or reconstruction as a, a hint point in history, which obviously it is, but really really well done when he puts this all together. I just think the chapter. Uh, and the chapter before this, too, was just kind of rushed. This chapter, I think he's having difficulty telling the story a little bit. And I think it's because all the roads lead to capital. And so I, I, I see now, I think, partially what he's doing is trying to map this out, how every direction towards progress was stopped by, by capital. All right? it, they, they were in a black iron prison the whole time, and they didn't even know it. North and like workers, north and south, black and white, planters even, they're all in the same black iron prison of, of monopoly capital. Uh, it just took a transformation, a period of chaos to get to that, to, to reconstruct that prison. All right. So anyways, is that enough to say about this? Yeah, last... Um, Last episode will be on this book, will be next, where we'll do the conclusion, which will be founded in the public school, back towards slavery, and the propaganda of history. Um, so um, I guess I'll give my final thoughts about Black Reconstruction America in the next episode as well. Um, I'm looking forward to finishing up this book with you. Um, but. Anyways, that's going to be it for now. Let me know what you think about this book or its themes. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. See you next time. The strength that I got until I die. So I'm going to stand up, take my.